Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Seven Sage LSAT podcast. My name is Henry Ewing, and I'm joined with my lovely co-host, Asta Sinha. Now, today, Henry, we have another guest, another a third co-host here, and I'm super excited to introduce him. JY, take it away. Hello. I'm JY. <laughs> I used to host the Seven Sage podcast. Now I'm here as a guest. Hey, JY. Welcome back to the podcast. The big man himself. The LSAT celebrity. So, JY, if you're open to just jumping right into it, I feel like when I was studying the LSAT, I heard your voice so much, and I knew so little about you. So if you'd be open to sharing just a little bit about your background, where you were from, how did we get to this point when we're doing this podcast right now? I was born in Shanghai, and I immigrated to the States when I was seven with my mom. I grew up in, well, elementary school was in Augusta, Georgia, of all places. It's famous for one thing, the Masters Golf Tournament. Ah, Augusta, the Green Jackets. <laughs> the, the Green Jacket, that's right. So I, I went there for elementary school. Middle school was in Nashville. Year of high school was in Nashville. And then I finished up high school in New Jersey, went to Columbia for undergrad. And then I went straight through to Harvard for law school. And then after law school, I came back to New York and kind of was like, you know, kind of like finding my way about a year before I settled into Seven Sage very seriously. Interesting. So have you always, had you always known that you wanted to go to law school or was that something you decided while you were in undergrad? When did that happen? <laughs> That's a good question. Yeah, no, no, I had no idea I wanted to go to law school. I entered undergrad with, without any kind of career objective. I was, I guess I was, I was kind of, it was a long time ago. I'm trying to remember what it was. I remember my mom told me to study pre-med. <laughs> she's, she's a doctor. She told me to study pre-med. I was like, okay, maybe. So I went to the pre-med orientation and I just saw all the classes that you had to take to complete your pre-med program. And, and then on top of that, you still had to major in something, you know, like bio or chemistry or something. So I was like, oh, that's, I don't, I don't think so. I'm not like, you know, that serious about it. So then I was, you know, I was kind of just exploring, taking classes that was, that was interesting. I studied economics. Economics is kind of at Columbia Economics and Political Science are there, you know, might still be true right now, but at the time it was definitely two of the kind of fallback majors when people don't really know what they want to do. So that's what I ended up studying. And then a lot of kids in econ and poli sci, they get pushed into either management consulting or investment banking. Back then, I think our career services program were basically trying to push everybody in that direction. But I missed the boat on that. I just wasn't that interested in in investment banking. But I remember distinctly remember when like junior year summer rolled around, every, all, all my friends were like, oh, you know, with their internships, right? Like that that's the important internship because that's when they probably gets turned into a job. I was like, oh, I have no idea what I'm going to do, but you know, about to graduate. So shit, I better, I don't know, I better do something. I guess law school, law school is the, law school is, a, it's, it's like a way to defer making the real decision about your career. And I think back then, even back then law firms, you know, New York City law firms are paying just obscene amounts of money to their first year associates. So I was like, okay, I mean, that's, that seems like a pretty good fallback strategy. So, I mean, that's not what I wrote about in my personal statement, but that, that is like the decision-making process for me going to law school. I really just didn't know what else to do. So I studied for the LSAT for a summer and, you know, it took a little bit. The summer was when I intensely studied, but it took me, you know, most of the fall as well to, to study, to prep, to fully prep for it. And then took the LSAT once, got a 173 and applied to just a few schools. I got into Harvard, I got into Columbia and NYU, and then I enrolled in Harvard the following the following semester. And I think pretty quickly I realized I didn't really enjoy being a law student. Yeah. What, what, what was that moment? Was there a specific <laughs> moment? Goodness. Not, not to dissuade any future lawyers, please buy Seven Sage and go to law school. But <laughs> was there a particular <laughs> moment where you're like, oh, maybe this isn't for me? Yeah, I guess it was when 
I mean, I guess there are sort of two kind of different reasons. One is more academic. I studied philosophy in undergrad as well and really enjoyed philosophy. And there's some philosophy in law, but law is more, you know, law school is, it's, it's, it's more about teaching you how to, how do I describe the academics of it? It's like, it's, it's teaching you how to make good arguments, right? Whereas like, I kind of view philosophy from like a more, you know, like purist, like, oh, it's more about finding out the truth, right? You know, like science is about finding out the truth, whereas like, oh, law is just, you know, it's just about making arguments. But I mean, to kind of let myself, let my younger self off the hook for having that that rather naive attitude, it's, it's because I didn't realize how important it is to be skilled in making good arguments, right? Because this is how, it's just a really important skill. And, you know, we're, we're like, so, we're social animals. We need to convince each other to make decisions as a group. And the best way to do that is to come up with a persuasive argument. But I, I didn't realize, I was just like, ah, this is like second rate academics. You know, this is not like, this is like, <laughs> yeah, this is not the Harvard truth. Law School is second grade <laughs> yeah, academics. Yeah, what do I know? But, but yeah, I think, I think the other thing was that I, so back when I enrolled, Elena Kagan was our dean. I remember during orientation, she knew that, you know, she had in front of her like, you know, 500 plus, like super high achieving type A, like neurotic kids that like, you know, that's how they got there. Right. And she was like, I just, she said a lot of things, but the one thing I remember, she's just like, guys, just, I'm paraphrasing her, like, just chill out. Right. Like the, the, the race is over, you've won. So just chill out. And I really took that to heart, uh, <laughs> which I, I think I probably interpreted a little bit more liberally than she, what she had intended. Cause I, I interpret it as like, well, you know, I don't really need to like, you know, pay attention to my class. I don't need to like, I don't really even need to go to class. Class is probably <laughs> optional. Uh, but yeah, so I took, I did not, I was not very serious about academics at law school. It actually very much in contrast to how I approached undergrad. I was, I was a straight up nerd in, in undergrad. I was like, I lived in the library. <laughs> But, you know, law school was a lot of fun. You know, I hung out a lot. I socialized a lot. And then I, I got the law firm job that I wanted. And I got it both of my summers. I kind of, you know, after having gone through that summer associate experience, like, oh, actually, I don't really, I don't really want this. I mean, yeah, it does pay a ton of money, but I don't know that this is what I really want to do. So then I also, that, so, so that's like sort of the academics and then the professional, those were sort of the two converging paths to where I ultimately realized this is not me. I don't know why I didn't drop out. No, 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 no. Uh, but I didn't. I graduated just barely, but I graduated. No, yeah. that, that, that makes a lot of sense. I guess what I'm wondering, what I'm hearing you say, right, is that you definitely had an idea that law school wasn't for you. And yet, nevertheless, you finished law school. Good on you for that. And you ended up working in law and you decided that you didn't like law. But there's a lot of things that aren't law, a lot of things that aren't law that also aren't LSAT tutoring. And so I'd love to know why you ended up, I know, but really though, like, like, like how, well, hey, you know, it's, it's true though. What it's like, how did you end up in the LSAT true. tutoring? So I guess when you have a, you're very interested in, you know, things about like how to make arguments or you had a more academic angle. I'm just wondering how the, the tutoring came about then. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. I think what happened was I, I was able to contrast the kind of professional work that I did as a summer associate at these law firms working on, you know, these like huge transactional. I was in cor the, I was in corporate law. You work on like these big, like a company wants to buy another company. That's like a ton of work. So you get a little piece of that. So I, I had some experience doing that. But then prior to that, right after college, a very good friend of mine from college, we started this nonprofit program called Pre Pro Bono, which, you know, it, our, the mission was to help underrepresented and immigrant kids 
who really can't access test prep, try to give them test prep and then provide them with not just test prep, but also like try to get them to do like public interest law, you know. So that gave me a lot of experience with starting up my own thing. And it also gave me a lot of experience. And I, I previously also had experience teaching. When I was a senior in college, I was a TA for Econ 101 class. And so I had I had experience doing like something that I really, really enjoyed, which is teaching. And I also had experience doing something that's very creative, which is, you know, like starting up your own program where, where there are no like well-defined parameters about like what you need to do. And and, and both of those things are, are highly in contrast to the kind of work you do as a corporate lawyer, right? It's it's, it's not, I mean, at least at the low, low levels, it's not, it's not very creative at all. You just, you receive instruction from your, you know, more senior associates. The old cog in the machine kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That's exactly what that is. Yeah. And it's not, it's not teaching. You're just like working with documents. So like contrasted with that, I just, I couldn't do it. I just, I mean, you know, the, the money was really great. I, and I had no answer for how I was going to be able to pay back, I, you know, Harvard. I think I got like a little bit of money back, like maybe like 20, 30,000 from, from Harvard, just purely a need base. But that went away as soon as I took my summer associate job, my 1L summer. All right. So they immediately take the, which I, I think that makes sense, right? You know, associates make a lot of money, but I didn't know how I was going to pay back the loans, but lost the thread of your question there. No, the thread, the thread of the question was, was really just asking like how, how you, I mean, and you answered it pretty well, which is like how you ended up in the tutoring space, which it sounds like you had a lot of, you had a, you had a large desire to teach and you also had the skills of, you know, from the pre-pro bono building your own program. Yeah. I just, I loved it. I love teaching. Yeah, yeah, that, that's what it was. I just love teaching. Like I, I would teach back pre-pro bono, you know, we would model these programs where we would run weekend workshops, weekend LSAT workshops, and I would teach literally eight hours a day, like back to back Saturday, Sunday. So I would just lecture and try to do my best and not to lose my voice. But I felt like so energized the entire time. And it wasn't until the class was over that I felt, oh, shit, I'm totally drained. <laughs> like this was exhausting. But like while the eight hours <laughs> were, you know, I, I, I could have done this forever. Whereas in contrast to, you know, when I was, I just, I still remember like my two all summer, I was staffed on a real estate deal. It was hard for me to do like 10 minutes of doc review work. Like that was like, oh, I was like you know, grinding my teeth just to do like 10 minutes or so. That was that was just the reality of my psychological experience. I couldn't, maybe had I not known what it was like to teach, and not everybody's like this, right? Like I've worked with lots of students, lots of teachers, and I, I can tell not everybody, but you know, some people are just naturally like gravitate towards certain things. And I think for me, teaching was just a very easy easy, easy thing for me to do. So that's, I think that's why I decided, well, I don't know, I try, I'll try to make it work. I don't want to, I just, I know I don't want to do my corporate law job. I don't know if I can make tutoring work, but I, I, I just, I wanted to try. Yeah. Hey, it did work. Well, hey, it spoiler, worked for me. At least. It, work. yeah, it worked out, worked out for me. So thank you for that. You know, I'm happy. I'm happy they staffed you on that real estate deal. I wouldn't be where I am right now. <laughs> Save yeah. goes here. Before we go on too much into Seven Sage, what's kind of going on there, I want to rewind just a little bit. And from what you remember, at least, just kind of want to learn more about what your LSAT experience was like when you were studying. You said you studied during the summer and the fall. What? How did JY study for the LSAT? I'm sure that's a question that a lot of people want the answer to. Oh, man, this is some time ago. So that summer, I was in Hong Kong because my girlfriend at the time had an investment banking job in Hong Kong. And so I just, you know, I flew out there to just hang out in Hong Kong. She would like go to work and I would go to the Hong Kong public 
law library and I would study for the LSAT there by myself, take a prep test. I did a lot of blind reviewing. Actually, I didn't call it blind reviewing. I hadn't invented the term yet, but like I, that's what I was doing because I realized that like as I was taking prep tests and I'm checking the answer, I was like, wait a second, this isn't actually helping. I'm just I'm just like quickly trying to get like a validation, a sense of validation that I got something right or whatever. So I, I just I forced myself not to look at the answers to, to get up to increase the quality of my review, my study. So I, I, I also have I also have a memory of standing over the photocopier, this like giant Xerox machine, dropping coins in there and just making a gajillion copies of logic games because that's what you had to do back then. Good. That's the first form of foolproofing. <laughs> yeah, I remember. Yes, that's right. That's also where that's where foolproofing came from because I also remember the Amazon. Uh, having to like... <laughs> went, went to JWAS foolproofing pages. Anyways. Yeah, I also remember having to basically theorize why i had to come up with an explanation of why answers were right and answer and other answers were wrong so this is where i think my philosophy training really helped i mean i i used a lot of the materials that were already in existence back then and which was just like books right were they any good i was wondering like what the lsat space was like back in the day i didn't think so because i, I <laughs> thought they were like they were good up to a point right they were good up to like they can explain a lot of the questions on the test but they couldn't explain all the questions on the test and if you're you know i was gunning for like a 170 plus score and that's where you see the theory if your explanatory theory right or if your framework isn't powerful enough or it, it just it fails once you get to i don't even want to call them edge cases once you get into like uh, like once you start tiptoeing towards the edge you, you, it already starts to fail you don't even need to get to the edge right it's, it's like if you want a 155 sure yeah that's fine you want a 160 and yeah maybe or you want them in 65, it becomes really hard to use those theories to kind of get you because it just didn't make sense. Like the, the theories were overly simplistic. It, just, it, couldn't, it couldn't reliably predict correct answers and wrong answers. And a lot of it is because the theories weren't steeped in grammar analysis, weren't steeped in actual logic, right? Weren't steeped in causal logic, conditional logic. So that's when I just, I had to like, to like come up with my own theories about why. And, you know, I, I, like I said, I, I was lucky in that I had training in philosophy, which is where I was able to, you know, those were my foundations, right? And all the training I had in philosophy, like that was fully sufficient to explain all of this stuff. In fact, I probably have said this at some point in, in the core lessons, but symbolic logic, I took a semester of symbolic logic. I think on the LSAT, the kind of logic shows up, you're done with that stuff in like three to four weeks of symbolic logic and at a college level, right? So all the advanced stuff you don't even use. So yeah, everything I had was all of the sort of like economics was also very helpful too. There are a lot of powerful frameworks in economics that explain the questions. So I just kind of brought all of that to bear so that I could understand why I was getting questions wrong. Because if you don't understand why you're getting it wrong, you're going to keep getting it wrong. You're not gonna, <laughs> right? So that's, that's when I guess the proto- curriculum already sort of started to take shape did you write you know? any of it down no i didn't write any no absolutely uh, not. <laughs> imagine there was like a notebook five years from now you're like kicking yourself you're like oh my god <laughs> <laughs> i did have i had a lot of notes back then you know you, you had to it was all paper and pencil i had like notebooks but a lot of my notes were just like it's just like you idiot like you gotta read better <laughs> yeah. like, do you see this word here this word says not why did you see this word it's all it's all caps or crying out loud how you enjoy yeah. yeah so it's not not very helpful stuff it's be just, more careful <laughs> yeah yeah like like yes yeah, yeah stuff like that right like pick the right answer dummy it's like okay that's good <laughs> i think those exact words are in every single one of my yeah. students wrong yeah. answer journals yeah. that one has stayed consistent <laughs> that's yeah it's funny what you say about the symbolic logic i actually took some before i even thought i was going to go to law school i took I, I was also a philosophy major for those of you who are listening and i, I took symbolic logic and i i actually dropped the class and took ar an argument theory class instead because i thought it was too hard 
after like one week. Oh, not I, even I, elementary. Not even elemen- I, know, logic. I didn't even get to like, you know, it was like the basic <laughs> arithmetic of logic. And I was like, nah, I'm out of here. Which I will say, though, <laughs> I, I'm happy I took the argument theory course because it did expose me to some things like false dichotomies and whatnot, which, which comes up sometimes on this t- a decent amount it comes up it's not as much as i'd like it to not as much as you know conditional reasoning which comes up all the time <laughs> so definitely kicking myself about that but economics for sure i think it's super helpful to have a at least a, some idea about economics going into this test because there's just i don't know a lot of economics makes sense i when you say that you're when you said you were like a ta for econ 101 i feel like that's just like a class where there's so many wow that makes so much sense moments like as a student there were so many wow that makes so much sense moments and you know on the lsat i feel like i that's it's just nonstop moments like that when I was studying. I was like, oh my God, of course it's C. You know, of course it's answer C. Of course that's a sufficient assumption. Things like that. Yeah, it's a very it's a very well constructed test. Oh, super cool. Unique. I don't know. I'd never taken a test. Did you think it was an interesting test when you were taking it? Yeah, I loved it. I thought it was again, this kind of goes back to, you know, philosophy. A lot of what I what I really liked about philosophy and in contrast with what I kind of didn't like about poli sci was that you had to know a lot of facts in, in you know for political science to do your analysis. You just you had to know history, you had to just know a lot of things that were true. Whereas with philosophy, a lot of it it was more I mean, you definitely need to but you know, it's it felt more like it was skewed towards reasoning. Right, you need to know the rules of of logic, and it was just a lot of thinking, a lot of reasoning. I preferred that, and I thought the LSAT was like that. It definitely helps. It definitely helps if you know a lot about the world, right? Because you just have the right context to understand a lot of these short little arguments in LR or the passages that they excerpt. But it's not necessary. They are testing your ability to reason well and to comprehend what you read. So before we kind of jump back into Seven Sage, what all that is, where Seven Sage is going. While we're on the topic of studying for the LSAT, was there anything that you wish you knew back when you were studying that you know now about how to study, things to study, approaches? Were there anything that you wish you did differently? Unless you just did it all perfectly, which I would not be shocked. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't, I actually find it hard to answer this question because I think I had, I've thought about this so much and I've, I've tried so hard to put all of like basically my answer to like decompress my answer and and put it into the core curriculum. You know what I mean? So like I feel like in some ways my answer is yes, a ton and look at the curriculum. <laughs> to, to kind of like like here's an example, you know, like full, full proofing is, is an example of that, right? I didn't really know what I was doing. I just knew that like, oh, I think the logic game section really rewards you for being able to not just make inferences, but being able to recognize the patterns of inference making that reoccur, right? So I, I just, because I would, I would get a question wrong because I couldn't make this inference and then I would do another game and I realized, oh, I got, I got it wrong. Yeah, but that, but then the realization was that, wait, 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 this is not a new mistake. This is actually an old mistake because the same inference that led to this answer being right was the inference that I didn't get last time. So that's when like a light bulb when I was like, wait, they're, they're just like, it's patterning, right? They're trying to test your ability to make inference and the way they do is they construct these questions and the test writers themselves are just using, you know, they're like slightly altering the, you know, this time it's clowns, next time it'll be dinosaurs. But really it's <laughs> just about like, I don't know, there aren't enough slots left in the final open group. So everyone else has to go to the only remaining slot. That's the generic inference. 
right? That you make over and over again. So it's like, well, how do I do that? Maybe, maybe I'll just like take a game and just kind of keep doing it to see if I can start getting like habituating myself to thinking in that way, to like drawing that inference, like seeing that when a slot, seeing when a group has like one slot remaining, but then that there's some game pieces left. And then of the remaining game pieces, like two of them had this relationship where like one of them has to be out because they don't like each other. So one of them has to be out. See, right there, that sets it up for the inference. One of them has to be out, which means everybody else has to go in, has to go into only a remaining slot. That, that's like a generic inference. So I thought, like, how can I see more of that? Well, just by doing the games over and over and over, like not just one game, but, you know, d- different games. And that's how I'm going to be able to recognize these patterns. So that's just a very narrow example of what I had, you know, what I eventually turned into like a more formalized version in the lesson about, you know, foolproofing, because that's basically like, hey, I made all these mistakes. Here's what I learned from these mistakes, right? Here's how you should approach it. I mean, it is no guarantee that you won't make your own mistakes, but it is a guarantee that you won't make at least the mistakes that I made, right? Like these are mistakes that I made. So they are like mistakes that can't be made. So please don't make these mistakes. I would love it if you could go out and discover your own mistakes, right? Because it's, of course, you're going to make mistakes. There's no perfect system out there. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense, though. I I feel like I definitely have a, I mean, it's probably because I did Seven Sage and and used that as my study tool, but a very similar experience at one point where it kind of felt like I was just doing the games. And, you know, the first step was, you know, learning how to diagram the games and just getting good at diagramming. But eventually it gets to the point where you almost just know that an answer choice is right, just based on like this pattern recognition. You don't even have to write anything Mm -hmm. down. Just like you just know, okay, it has to be D for X, Y, and Z. Because I've seen it a thousand times. But it's interesting hearing, you know, like... (laughs) why that comes about from the blind reviewing and you know, the foolproofing, like building those reps in. I feel that could be a good future podcast too, like talking about various like methods on this test and, and what the, I don't know, what would the seed, is seed the right term? Like what was the inspiration behind that? Because it's, it's nice hearing like, oh, this is why you came up with this foolproofing idea. I don't know if you experienced the same thing, Asta, where you like you look at it, you answer choice, you're just like, yeah, it seems pretty right. Oh, for sure. Like I like more... More than once in my live classes, I've been asked, like, you know, how do you do logic games? Like, what's your thought process? Or even with, like, LRRC and, like, a non-negligible amount of the times, it's just the vibes. Like, I just, I read it. I'm like, yeah, that makes sense. That's the one that it's just got to be just because I've seen so many questions on this test. I've probably done every game at this point. And so at one point with that much repetition, you just kind of get a sense for what's going on and you don't have to think too hard about it. And something, Henry, we've talked about a lot on this podcast is once you get to a point with this test where you've kind of mastered it, you're not doing a whole lot of thinking anymore in the sense that a lot of the decisions that you're making are automatic. You've like, systemically like reprogrammed your brain into thinking a certain way. And so you don't have to consciously decide those things anymore. So yeah, I I totally, totally get that. Yeah, it's the LSAT blackout they talk talk about. Talks about I feel like that they talk right? about it all the time. I like, you know, I, 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 they? I read it, you know, or I don't know. It's like if you look online, they're like, yeah, man, I just blacked out. But I don't remember a single question. I don't remember a single question Goodness. that happened on my test after after mine. <laughs> I shall let you, Henry, come up with all the all the cool terms for the. I mean, the LSAT blackout. <laughs> I've, never, I've never heard that before, but I, I kind of know what you mean. It's, it's true that you take a section, you're like, you're like, yeah. oh, I, what did I just do? Yeah, which what, what just <laughs> happened? Yeah. It's it's like a time. It's a portal. It's a portal to to the future. <laughs> it's the LSAT portal. Let's move on to the next question before Henry goes absolutely insane here. I do want to start talking a little bit about kind of Seven Sage itself and. Kind of like what hole were you trying to fill? What problem were you trying to solve mm, when yeah. you were, you know, creating Seven Sage? What was the thought process behind I that? I believe you mean what gap were you trying to close? 
Oh my uh, God. Come on, Henry. come on. Yeah, 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 yeah. You Bill, know, you know hey, what Bill. gap in the study? Okay, anyways. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I, I guess, what was I trying? I mean, I guess the gap I was trying to fill was how to pay rent. <laughs> right. That's probably the most, like, I, you know, like, I, I was, I was in New York, I moved back to New York and the reality of, you know, loans became very real. So I was tutoring students, just like literally Craigslist ads, <laughs> tutoring students. Like I started out free. I would advertise like, hey, I just want to tutor you for free. And then, you know, it, it, it didn't take that long before I got a big enough clientele going where I could actually, you know, pay rent, you know, $4 slice right. pizza. Um, <laughs> which, actually, sorry, that was such a parochial reference to New York City. But anyway, it's still a dollar, by the way, even with all this inflation. How do they do it? But so... I yeah, don't want to know. know. <laughs> <laughs> at some at some point, I think I just got to the point. At some point, I just realized like every one of my new not maybe not everyone, but like most of my new students, I have a shtick. You know, could I I'd have to explain the same concepts over to them because they're foundational concepts. If you never expose yourself to philosophy, you don't really know what an argument is, right? You don't know the idea of support. You don't know premises conclusions. If you never expose yourself to math or philosophy, you don't really know what a proof is. You don't know what, like, how to derive claims from other claims through, like, a you know, through deduction. I realized, like, a couple of things. One was I kind of got sick of teaching the same things over and over again. <laughs> and I also realized that it was just not a good way for my students to pay me money to, like, learn this stuff. Sometimes I would, I would you know, I don't remember what I was charging back then, maybe like 45, maybe 60 bucks an hour. But, like, that's a lot of money. And sometimes the students, we'd have a session and then the next week they'd forget and we have to have the same session. So I just just viewed it as highly inefficient, right? Like you, the student, probably don't want to be doing this with me, especially not when it's costing you so much money. I, I mean, I'll do it, but I'd rather be doing something else with you. I'd rather be doing something new with you, right? So I was like, there's got to be a better way. So uh, at some point I was just like, you know what? Let's talk about something else today. I'm going to go home. I'm going to make a video for you. And I just want you to watch the video. That way it's, you have it. And it's, you know, it's always there. So that, that's really how I got started. I just started making these videos that I thought were good concepts that students needed to know. And back then that was still a novel thing. You know, I put it up on YouTube with my, you know, shitty Microsoft paint background <laughs> yeah. right, with like my, my like mouse, <laughs> like, like my mouse that I was using to, <laughs> yeah. you know, to, as, as, as a pen. But, you know, it got the job done. It started attracting views from I don't know where because that's how YouTube works. Do these videos still exist? Like the first ever like core curriculum version, like point yeah, one? I, yeah. No, I, I still have them. Yeah. They're not on YouTube anymore. Oh, my goodness. No, you should you can't, absolutely you cannot, release them. You cannot know <laughs> over, over my dead <laughs> I would no, actually, I'm kidding. to see them. You, yeah, you can see them. It's fine. I mean, they're they're just, they're like, you know, they're like version 0.1 and they're they're super shitty. The audio is super shitty. <laughs> but, you know, back then it was cutting edge, right? Because back then, <laughs> if you didn't do this, you had to take a like a big box LSAT class for, I don't know, $1,500 or something like that. But yeah, so I just kept doing this and then I was still tutoring. And then at some point, I got the idea that, hey, you know what? Maybe I need to get all of these videos onto a DVD. And oh. that way I can, I can, I can sell DVDs. <laughs> that, that was DVD? not at all where I thought that was going. <laughs> like maybe I can get all these videos onto a cassette tape, right? Or something like, right? onto a floppy disk. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh my God. No, this was, this was, yeah, no, this was, I, I mean, okay. So it was like 2013, maybe 2012, but even back then that was yeah. not a good idea. Yeah. Um, yeah. 2012. <laughs> but it, I think it, it was it was back when Netflix was still doing like the DVD shipping right. thing. Right, uh, you guys are too young to know this, but 
there was a time in the history of Netflix when you could cite your subscription was they would mail you movies in DVD form in your literal mailbox. Unbelievable. I mean, I don't know about you, Henry, but I was alive. I've been li- alive long <laughs> enough to go to Blockbuster. Like I, you know, have like really? some memories from my childhood. Yeah. When I was like really young, but I, yeah. I know that it existed. I, I've walked into the building before. Yeah. I, I feel like I have some like fever dream of Blockbuster, but uh, honestly, I... <laughs> <laughs> When your grandpa would tell you stories. Yeah, yeah, like, right. And maybe I'm like, you know, <laughs> fall asleep taking those then... into my own. Like I'm imagining what the Blockbuster was like. I can't, honestly, I can't remember how I went to Blockbuster. So, I, I mean, I heard DVD. I mean, that's, that's crazy to me. You know? right. Especially yeah. 2012, because yeah. I was very much, you know, conscious during 2012. No, so we, we, we did this. We, we actually we actually did this. I, I, I hired somebody to build out a website for me to, like, you know, try to sell DVDs. And it didn't work. Thank God. <laughs> and that's when, you know, Alan, who I knew from law school. He, he was a coder before he went to law school. I, I actually don't know why. He, you guys should probably interview him, ask him why he <laughs> yeah. went to law school. But anyway, so like after he graduated, like, you know, I was like, hey, I remember you kind of knew how to code. Do you want to like, you know, do you want to code this <laughs> yeah, website for me? So, you know, that's how we, yeah, that's how we started collaborating. And we hit upon the right idea of building out an online digital first online LSAT curriculum. Yeah. And that's, that I think was 2012. Was it you who thought that. of the name? It's been 11, 11 years. Yeah. Seven stage? Or was it Alan? Um, no, it was not. No, I think it was neither. I, I think it was my friend from college who I did the nonprofit with that thought of the, that thought of the name. So I do, I do have a question. I don't think most of our listeners, and I didn't until very recently, know what Seven Sage meant. Like, what, what does the name mean? Well, <laughs> I think based on the question, I, I'm inferring that you do know what Seven Sage means. So I would love it if you could tell me what Seven Sage means because I'm not, I'm not too sure actually. It's definitely catchy. <laughs> I, I'm a yeah, very like I'll tell you, like it's like we could get the we could get the URL that that was huge. Uh, for us, right? yeah. We couldn't get Seven yeah. Sages, yeah. like Seven Sages yeah. plural, like grammatically correct was already gone, so we couldn't get that. <laughs> but Seven Sage we could get, so we 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 grabbed it, and I don't know, it just sounded kind of like techie, right? It's like it's like Seven Sage, you know, it's got a number and it's about education, so Sage. Yeah. Yeah, Seven's a good know. number too. I feel um, like it wouldn't work if it was like five stage. <laughs> it's like doesn't have the same yeah, ring. I wouldn't work here. I wouldn't work there's, here if it was five stage. <laughs> Alliteration goes a long it, it, way. It really does. Yeah, really, really does. I, I mean, it's 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 some Chinese proverb, I believe, right? Or there's some proverb about. I don't know. I, I I don't. Why did I say proverb? I don't know why I said proverb. It's some story. Oh, like a like a like a yeah. What is it? Like a seven sages of the bamboo yeah. grove. India has a culture of like seven sages of Indian bamboo grove, and then like there was like Rome had the seven, seven sages of like you know this or that. So it's kind of like a cultural trope, you know, so it is there. That's probably like where, I mean, we didn't just come up with idea de novo, right? Like we, it kind of seeped in, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's just kind of loosely, we're playing, playing like association, right? Like, you know, education, sage, wisdom, but the URL was available. That's, that's, that was the deal closer. No, 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 no. I was just saying, it's, it's really, you know, the seven sage, it means whatever you want it to be. Kind of like how when you use seven sage, <laughs> you can study how you want to study. Oh my god! With access to hundreds, (laughs) with access to hundreds of video explanations. Sorry, go ahead. What were you saying, also? No, I was just saying that, like, what I had been told about, I like barely remember it. Somebody told me, someone from Seven Stage told me in passing, like, what it meant, and I was like, oh, like that's really like deep and philosophical and all this stuff. But to hear from you that it's just the URL was (laughs) open is really (laughs) funny. I think we get. (laughs) Yeah, I wish. (laughs) I was just gonna ask, you know, like that's how Seven Stage started. 
that was kind of the idea with it. It all just kind of came together. It's been a while, right, since Seven Sage has been open. How is kind of the direction of the company, of your own teaching philosophy, what you're trying to do with Seven Sage? How has all that kind of changed in the last Ooh. 10 plus years? Yeah, asking asking the, the, the questions. I, I think a lot has changed. I mean, just the LSAT has changed so much, right? Like we were first to market with a digital online curriculum, which was quite innovative back then. And the LSAT was like a paper test, right? So you basically had to do all the work of prepping for the LSAT offline, right? Most of the work anyway. You can learn while you're in front of your computer or iPad or whatever, but you still have to do the prepping work itself offline. That's no longer true. It hasn't been true for a couple of years now. Now it's like, not only are you learning online, you're also practicing online, right? So that was a pretty big change we had to contend with. We had to, we're still in the middle of it. We're still trying to think about how we can redesign the user interface so that it's action first, if you will, right? So that we, we, we kind of recognize that like, you know, yeah, students are still coming to the website for the lessons, of course, but they're also coming to the website more and more for actually getting their work done, right? Like doing drills, taking prep tests. So that has become very important for us. And we've been trying to think of new features that we can release to, to serve students in that way. Something else that's totally new is our entire tutoring team, right? right? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> including the two of you, including like running live classes, right? That's also something that we haven't had for that long. I think it's only been like two years since we've had that had that service. I think it's long overdue. We have so many students using the platform. It just makes sense to a lot of the students want to study together. A lot of them want more help, either one-on-one or they want to, you know, maybe not one-on-one, but in, in a classroom setting where they can have like kind of synchronous communication with an instructor and get, get instant feedback. Those are really valuable things that, and we were not providing that until we pilot, until we started piloting the live live class and also the you know the tutoring services so th- that's that's also totally new and completely awesome I, I love that you know and and you guys I used to host the podcast and <laughs> it's just you know you, you guys probably know it's like just you know I would interview students you just kind of talk about it's like not really we weren't executing on like a plan you know it was just okay well somebody wants to talk about their experience let's let's just talk about it but yeah the, these are all like new things that we're doing and it's great I, 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 I remember at least Asa told me this I think you observed her first tutoring session I don't know. Do you have any memory of that? Is that true, Asa? It was. It wasn't even just you, JY. It was you. David was there. <laughs> Scott was there, and Raphael was there. So, like myself, Scott, and Raphael were the first three tutors that joined our right. one-on-one tutoring program. I remember that. So, all of you guys, the first tutoring client that Seven Sage ever had was also my first client, and all of you guys <laughs> were in the background of that call, just watching me, <laughs> and I was freaking out like oh my god i don't think i've ever been more nervous in my entire life during that session session went well she scored very well on the test everyone was happy but it was a very nerve-wracking experience and i think that wasn't that long ago less than two years ago that the tutoring department yeah, started less it's than two now, years ago that's right i, I remember very it was august of 21 i was like okay let's do this tutoring thing i thought i was going to be done with the test and then <laughs> join seven sage and here i am many 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 months later so thanks for starting the tutoring department. I appreciate it. It worked out very well for me and for a lot of students. It's been it's been really awesome to be a part of. Yeah, I'm I'm so happy we we made you freak out because that probably made you perform really well. And <laughs> yeah, we had no idea what we were doing either. So <laughs> that's. <laughs> 
anyone listening who's like thinking about being a seven ship, it's not what we do now. No, <laughs> no. Not, we like run a much tighter ship now and JY is not watching your first session, I promise. <laughs> or, I mean, hey, if that's an incentive, he could be. Who knows, right? You know, it's possible, <laughs> right? If you, if you want to get, you know, get the look from JY. Apply for Seven Stage Tutoring or apply to Seven Stage Tutoring. God, Harry, what are you signing me up for? <laughs> the, uh, one thing I, I am wondering, though, is I, hear, I heard a lot about like the the Seven Stage like, services offered. One thing I was just wondering, in terms of teaching style, because I know a little bit about this, but I'd love to hear more about it from your own in your own words, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, of course. I, I think, again, we're just kind of formalizing something that I always would express in my curriculum, which is that I guess you could, you could say that like, there are no tricks to DELSAT. DELSAT is pretty tough right it's it's a hard test but it's a reasonable test like the answers aren't arbitrary and they're also not mysterious right it's like there are reasons why answers are right and answers are wrong and those reasons are fixed and they don't change from prep test to prep test you, you i mean it's, that doesn't mean it's easy you, you do need to first learn what those reasons are and i think the harder part is reasoning in that way so that it's second nature because you know, the test is time limited. So you have to not only understand how to reason that way, you have to be able to do it super fast. That's what's really, really hard. So I, I think it's probably just a pet peeve of mine. I just, I don't like it when I hear, you know, people talk about, oh, the LSAT is like easy, the LSAT, oh, you know, there are these shortcuts and whatever. I mean, there are easy questions on the LSAT. I guess that, that's what yeah. you mean by the LSAT is easy. <laughs> I guess that's true, but there are also really hard questions on the LSAT. There are questions that I still get wrong. When test writers release a new prep test, I take it. I've never gotten a 180. If you guys can believe it, like I've never actually gotten a 180. Not even on my really? prep test, I've ever gotten a 180. No, I, I don't. Even, I mean, I don't even know what the highest prep test score I've ever gotten is. But it doesn't matter. Like I've never gotten a 180. That's crazy, right? I've been doing this for like 10 plus years. It's a hard test, and the time crunch makes it extra hard. So I guess I, I don't know. I mean, people don't like studying for the test. I've experienced it personally, and I know it's just a really hard, hard thing. People generally, it's true. Like, it's, you kind of don't like doing hard things. So I can see why there's the appeal to like, oh, it's easy. There are these shortcuts or tricks, but there isn't. And if you just think about it for a second, how could there be? Like, it doesn't make any sense. How could there be a shortcut for this? Like, then everybody would be getting 170. Like, that doesn't make any sense at all. So I think it, a lot of it is just, it's just probably just my pet peeve, which is why I beat the drum of like, look, it's a hard test, but it's also something you can study for. And it's also something that makes sense. So I think that's that's really great. You know, the, the, a lot of things are, I mean, it's, it's, it's different from a lot of other tests that are hard, right? Like I know the MCAT is also hard, but it's a different kind of hard. MCAT, you have to memorize a lot of stuff, right? So the LSAT, you don't really have to memorize that. The set of things that you need to just commit to memory is very small. Almost nothing, arguably. Yeah. I mean, like some rules of logic and stuff, like e even those rules of logic, it, part of it is like committing them to memory, but then hopefully at some point it's you're you're not just doing rote memorization hopefully at some point that you understand why the rules of logic are what they are which then means that you don't actually need to memorize these arbitrary like contrapositive right oh flip it around slap negations that's just a memorization something you can like kind of program a computer to do but if but there's a layer deeper to that understanding i mean if you know why the contrapositive is logically equivalent right and then why you need to flip it around and slap negations on it then you kind of don't even really need to memorize that anyway right you just because you you just you, you get it yeah no i feel like a lot of those tricks too that I, I mean and you know i think we've all been guilty of like almost relying on them sometimes that it, it's like they skip over the why right it's like a trick to, to trick to do like to tell you the what but i mean you know you always say that the lsat that writers they're they're aware of the tricks and so they're gonna slip in questions that will fool people who rely on those tricks 
So, so there's just, that's just another way of saying there's a ceiling. Like you can totally apply these, you know, whatever you want. You can call them tricks, rules of thumb, heuristics, like, you know, the, basically a algorithm to execute to get you to the right answer like 80% of the time, right? That's, that's what we're talking about here, these tricks. Like what's a good example? For most strongly supported or must be true questions, eliminate words with strong sounding answers, right? Or sorry, eliminate sound answers with strong sounding words in them, right? Okay, sure. That'll work a lot most of the time even like i think you, you probably could break into the 160s just just by like not even understanding why just applying that blindly to the answers when you see an mms mss don't even read the stimulus right why, why bother reading the stimulus just look at the answers if it has an all if it has the most eliminate pick the weakest sounding answer it'll i bet you that strategy is better than 20 percent odds right which is randomly picking i bet you that strategy probably gets you like i don't know maybe even 50 percent odds on getting the answer right Okay, so that is a strategy. It is better than throwing a dart at the board, but it is not better than the student sitting next to you who actually understands what support means, who can actually process the sentences in the stimulus and get to the right answer choices. They're going to come up with their own quote unquote tricks, but they're not really tricks. They're just algorithms that operate the fundamental rules of logic and grammar, and that will get them to the right answer way faster than you. See, the advantage is that that is a robust algorithm they're executing on, right? Like the next time the test writer is going to change it up on you, they're going to put it, they're going to slip in two answers that have like, you know, weak sounding. And then what are you going to do? You're, you're going to be waffling between the two answers, right? But the student sitting next to you who actually understands logic and grammar, no, it doesn't, they're not even seeing it. Like they don't even register. Oh, both of these are weak sounding. No, because that's not what they're even thinking about. They're thinking about why this answer is so clearly wrong and this other one is so clearly right. So that's the advantage, right? And they also have graded on a curve. So if you apply, you know, if, if that's the philosophy that, you know, that you're imbibing, if that's the philosophy that whatever curriculum you're using is peddling, then you're just, you're at, you're starting out at a disadvantage. It seems like a really great great way of describing people who use the seven stage LSAT curriculum and people who don't. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, okay. To be, to be fair, I don't, I don't think, you know, I don't think, you know, all of our competitors are, are like that. It, it, it's, a, it's a competitive marketplace. So I, I think there are definitely LSAT curricula out there that fit what I just described as sort of, you know, pushing shortcuts and whatever. But we're, I definitely don't think we're the only one that's trying to tell the truth about like, you know, what fundamental frameworks will work in explaining. I feel like the best services, they're the least snake oily, right? They're the most, but it's true that they're most <laughs> straight up being like, yeah, this is going to be hard. <laughs> it sucks, right? It sucks. It's going to be hard. But you know, honestly, too, it's something I always say. It's like being a lawyer is going to be hard, right? You know, like, like probably the LSAT will be one of the least difficult experiences of your law career. Not that I have that much experience, but I mean, just from hearing from what you, what you've told me, Jay, why you know I'm confirming my own biases here, right? Which is, to, it's like, yeah, you, you go to law school, it's actually worse, right? It's it's what I would say. It's like, you know, people are like, oh man, the reading comprehension passages are boring. It's like, you think the law school reading's great? Think it's a page turning? Yeah, probably not. I used to put my contracts book next to my bed as a 1L and when I had trouble falling asleep. Oh my God. <laughs> which I would because back then I didn't know anything about sleep hygiene. But I swear to you, I pick up that book like I wouldn't <laughs> even get through a page. <laughs> That's a really good game plan. Is there anything on the LSAT that you'd want to teach the general public? Like, do you feel like you're a better person? on the end, like coming out on the end of studying this test. It's a, it's a transformative test in a way, right? It, it definitely shapes your thinking, maybe for better or for worse, hopefully for better. <laughs> for sure. Um, and, and do you yeah. see things about the LSAT that you feel like it'd be useful if, you know, if you could wave a wand, everyone in the world <laughs> thinks this way, right? Or, or knows this one thing. Yeah, definitely. Yes. I think to varying degrees, all three sections test something very valuable. But if I, you know, if I had to just pick one, though, I'd probably pick logical reasoning. 
because it's, you know, kind of like the name attests, it's, it's how to be reasonable, right? You want to be a reasonable person, right? In our, in our civil society, in our democracy, you, you want to be able to talk to people that you have disagreements with and be able to hash that out in a reasonable way. So I think logical reasoning teaches you a lot of those core skills. It's like, it's like we're all starting from the same set of rules. These are the rules by which we construct arguments, right? These are our premises. This is a conclusion. And there are certain things that you can talk about and certain things that are just, you know, non sequiturs don't make sense, right? Like you can disagree over premises, right? If I serve premise X is true, you can like, you know, come up with evidence to say, actually, no, that's not true, right? But then if you kind of, you know, if you agree with my premises and you agree with my reasoning, you are bound to accept my conclusion, even if you don't agree with the conclusion, because you have no good reason not to agree with my conclusion. If you persist in not agreeing with my conclusion, that's by definition, you're exhibiting that you're not a reasonable person. So I think that's just something very, just, I don't know, it's just, just so valuable. And like when I, I didn't really get this when I was studying for the test, like obviously why would I? I was just trying to, to get all the questions right and go to law school, right? But because I've been forced, you know, by myself to engage with logical reasoning for so many years, I just realized, wow, this is just such an important skill, right? And so now I try to, you know, even myself, like I have, like, I, I wonder, you know, like, why do I believe this? Do I actually have, is there a good argument for it, right? And if someone, a Offers a counter argument, and I still feel the discomfort, right, of letting go of a particular, if it's like a cherished conclusion. But I think I'm slightly better at it now in, in recognizing that actually, you know, maybe I didn't have a good reason for it, and therefore the right thing to do is to let go of this of this position, whatever it may be. I don't know. You know, there's so much there's so much like talking over each other. So I, I think I think if there's if I could just wave a magic wand and everyone in the country would be better at one thing, I just if everyone in the country can get 23 out of 25 logical reasoning <laughs> questions right in 35 minutes. I think we live in a better country. <laughs> That's really funny. Henry and I have talked about this before, too, about how since we've kind of spent not nearly as much time as you have, but really like a decent amount of time with this test now, my brain just thinks differently, not by choice, not voluntarily, right? I don't look at like something on the news and choose to interpret it the way that I do. But since, you know, mastering this test, I have to, right? Like I have to identify, right? Like an illogical argument or a flaw or any of these assumptions that are being made, which, yeah, I, I do think it's for the better. I hope at least. If only everyone thought it like us, the world would be a better place, right? <laughs> yeah. I don't, just, just to be clear, like, and to make this a little political, I guess, like, there are fallacious modes of reasoning all across a political spectrum. Like, that's not, it's not like the right or the left has a monopoly on reasoning poorly. You know, reasoning poorly is just, it's a generic phenomenon. So I, I think it's just really important to be able to, you know, recognize that wh wh wherever it, it, it comes up. You know, like stupid obvious, but. No, yeah. it's not, the, the, it's less about like the conclusions you're at and more about how, how you arrived there. Did you arrive there in a, in a, in a good way as opposed to, you know, a fallacious way? <laughs> that, and that's the last word on, on weakening questions and logical reasoning. That's like yeah. all it is. <laughs> Well, thank you, JY, for sitting down with us and taking time out of your schedule to get grilled by me and Asta. <laughs> My absolute pleasure. See you next week. See you next week. Bye-bye. Bye, everyone. For more LSAT study tips, visit sevensage.com. See you next week. <laughs>